Good morning, Grace family. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, 23 to 31, the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything for us, so we should offer everything to Christ. That truth is illustrated everywhere in Scripture, and we're going to see it today in Acts 9. That the gospel changes everything, but it isn't always easygoing. As Jesus said, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. The gospel changes everything, even though everything isn't changed in your life. Please take your Bibles and stand with me. I'm going to read Acts 9, 23 to 31. We get the privilege of hearing the word of God. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. How at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied Lord we love you and we need you Lord open our eyes to truth change us by your spirit for your glory in Christ's name Amen Please be seated. The gospel changes everything for us, therefore we should offer everything to Christ. About four years ago, Target had an ad campaign where they tried to convince you that color changes everything. In 1983, Cindy Lauper sang, Money changes everything. Now, this political cycle we're in, you might be hoping a new president will change everything. Or maybe your aching heart wants you to think that a relationship will change everything. Now, you could say that air and water changes everything. If you don't believe me, try not breathing. Try not drinking any water. Or try driving with flat tires or eating pasta that has not been boiled in hot water. We need Jesus and the gospel like we need air and water. Paul said that Christ is our life, Colossians 3, 4. And when he is revealed in glory, we also will be revealed in glory. But until then, things are going to be tough. It's tempting to think, well, if the gospel changes everything, how come everything in my life is so messed up? Or if the gospel changes everything, how come I am so messed up? 
the gospel isn't broken we are God is making all things new he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose and the gospel changes everything even though everything isn't changed yet in your life the answer isn't found in trying harder to be good but in trusting God who is good We looked last week at Saul's conversion to Christ and his call from God. How he was a chosen instrument of God. How Jesus chooses unlikely suspects by his grace so that they would live their lives to fulfill his purposes. That's what you see in the life of Saul, Paul. Paul is the Roman version of Saul. But the gospel radically changed his life. Chapter 9, verse 20, you see this brand new believer immediately preach Jesus as the Son of God. And that's not just a title synonymous with Messiah. It expresses Jesus' unique standing as God. It expresses His intimate favor with the Father. It expresses God's direct involvement in Christ's redemptive work at the cross. It's the only time in the book of Acts that the title Son of God is used for Jesus. Very significant. In verse 22, we see that Saul is proving Jesus is the Messiah. That he is presenting a logical argument with a logical conclusion that the only argument can be we're going to kill you because you're doing this. It says he proves Jesus is the Messiah. It's in the present tense. It means it happened over and over again over an extended period of time. But Paul knows very well that faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, is not the result of logical, logical argument or rhetorical genius. In 1 Corinthians 1, he tells us that he didn't rely upon his abilities, but on the power of God. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't argue his case. It means that he relied on the power of the Spirit of God to move people from unbelief to faith. The power of God present in the proclamation of the gospel. The most feared persecutor of the church now has become its most famed promoter of the gospel. And today we see that Saul serves Christ and he suffers for it. When Jesus spoke to Ananias and told him to go and help Saul, whom Jesus had blinded for three days, he said, go because he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles. And then he said, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. And so right away we see Saul serving Christ and suffering. And he is learning firsthand what he already knew. He's seeing the other side of the coin. He's seeing that preaching the gospel brings violence as well as peace. That's what Saul had been doing, bringing violence against the name of Christ, bringing violence against Christians. He had arrested followers of Christ and was involved in their interrogations, involved in their murders. He had witnessed their courageous commitment to their convictions 
And now he is one of them. And what we see is that Saul is fearless in suffering. This passage breaks down nicely into three parts. First, in verses 23 to 25, you've got Damascus Jews want to take his life. Second, in verses 26 to 28, Christians don't believe he has new life. And then third, in verses 29 and 30, Hellenistic Jews want to take his life. And then a summary statement in verse 31. His former teammates in Judaism want to kill him. His new family in the church reject him. If you've ever felt rejected amongst the body of Christ, you know how Saul felt. Paul had to wonder why everything looks so bad even though the gospel is so good. So let's look at verse 23. First of all, Damascus Jews want to take his life. Verse 23 says, After many days had passed. And you wonder, is that a week? Is that a month? No, it's three years. The time frame is explained in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul says, When he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. So there's a three-year gap between verses 22 and 23 in Acts 9. Where, where, where was he over those three years? And by the way, a lot of people you know, want to say that you know, as soon as I become a believer, I, I want to have a big you know, platform for ministry. Well, right away, right away, Saul started preaching the gospel, but then he went out basically in the middle of nowhere and kept preaching the gospel. But he went to a place called uh, Nabataean Arabia, not the same as modern-day Arabia as we know it. This was a place south of Damascus, near the Sinai Peninsula. And he goes out there and he spends three years learning from the Lord. Three years learning from the Lord. Jesus had, had met him on the road. He had spoke to him. Uh, this was a, 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 an appearance of Jesus to Saul. And he saves him. He becomes, he becomes uh, convinced he needs to preach the gospel. And then he's sent for three years away. And then he returns. And he preaches powerfully. And the Jews plot to kill him. Verse 24 says that Saul finds out, and they were watching the gates night and day so he can't escape. Damascus is a walled city. And his disciples, verse 25, that means people who he led to Christ, take him at night, and there's this dramatic you know, escape from the city. They let him down through an opening in the wall and they lower him in a woven basket. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us a little bit more about this situation. He tells us in 11.32 that the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize him. The Jews were not the only ones that Paul had riled up. 
During his three years in Arabia, he had preached the gospel everywhere, and he wore out his welcome both with Jews and Arabs. They all wanted to kill him. So Saul goes to Jerusalem. He's got this escape from the city in the basket through the wall, and he goes to Jerusalem. Here's a place that he had been where he had tons of friends before. They were people that were aligned with him when he was wanting to persecute Christians, when he wanted Christians to be put to death, when he wanted them to be put in jail. He's got all these friends that agree with him. Now he goes to Jerusalem. He's got none of them. They can't go back to them. What does he have? His new family in Christ. His new family, the church. Problem is, while Damascus Jews want to kill him, second thing we see here, verses 26 to 28, Christians don't believe he has new life. They don't believe his testimony. Verse 26 says, when he comes to Jerusalem, he tries to join the disciples. And that literally means that he tried again and again and again to join them. And every time that he tried to join them, they said, no. You know, we don't want anything to do with you. You're, we don't believe you're a Christian. They wouldn't accept his, their new baby brother. They wouldn't buy his story. He's a, he's a fellowship-starved disciple at this point, and he's rejected and alone. Can't get in, can't break into the Jerusalem church. Now let's just say that you have had trouble meeting people at the church. Maybe you come into Grace Orange and you're like, you know, I just haven't been able to meet people. You know, and my answer to you is, you know, you got to get out of your comfort level and just pretend like you've been here a long time and just be really friendly and do what I do when I, you know, I'm visiting another church. I just pretend like I'm from there. During greeting time, I'm like, hey, how you doing? You know, and they're like, who is that guy? Well, this was different. This is much different. The church is very suspicious of him. The church is actually afraid of him. Now that, that kind of goes, stands to reason, doesn't it? They're, they're afraid of him because they heard of his reputation and what he had done and what he had instigated against Stephen and others. And so they're thinking, uh-uh, he's, he's trying to trick us. But they had heard that he who wanted to destroy us before is now preaching the gospel. But they didn't believe him. They were fearful. All except one. If you ever wonder, like, hey, could my life really make a difference in other people's lives? You gotta look at Barnabas here. One man unafraid to stand up to a church who was fearful of, of receiving a brother in Christ. Verse 27 Barnabas does three things with him. He takes him, he brings him to the apostles, and he declares his testimony. To take him literally means to be concerned with him to take an interest in him. It basically means he became his friend. He befriended him. No one else in the church was doing this. No one else. And then he brought him. He went with him. He physically accompanied him. And then he didn't just push him up in front of the apostles and say, no, tell him your story. He explained it. He talked about how Saul had seen the Lord and had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus had actually spoken to him. You see that Barnabas serves God's purposes well. You want to you wanna serve God's purposes well? Find somebody in the church that looks like they're really lonely, 
looks like they're maybe shunned a little bit or judged or, or doesn't have a lot of friends in the church and, and befriend them. And if you have a reputation for being trustworthy, people will follow your example. This is Barnabas. He vouches for the reality of Saul's conversion. He begins a friendship with Saul that takes them on a missions journey together that we'll see in chapter 13. I love the beauty of verse 28. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem. The idea is that he had open access, free access. He was be able to be bold with the gospel because the church had received him, had accepted him, had welcomed him. All because of God using Barnabas. Verse 26, he is not accepted. They're fearful of him. Verse 27, Barnabas does what he did. And verse 28, he's a member of the church. He's accepted. There's a beautiful, beautiful story, beautiful instance of the church accepting those they should accept. But the next thing you see, and it's the third thing we see here, is in verse 29 30, it's a good thing the church accepted him because now he had another group of Jews that want to kill him. Now this time it wasn't the Damascus Jews. This time it's the Hellenistic Jerusalem Jews, those who were from Gentile lands, Greek-speaking Jews that were in Jerusalem but were from Gentile lands. They want to take his life. Verse 29 It says he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, just like Stephen. What Stephen did, Saul finds himself in a debate, and he's speaking boldly in the name of Christ. You look back on Stephen's life, his last prayer was that God would forgive and save the people that had planned his death. Chapter 7, verse 60. And God had answered that prayer in in amazing ways in saving Saul. But this group of Hellenists were seeking to kill him. Here's Saul who had initiated this deep-seated anger and resentment and hatred and mistreatment of Christians, even leading to their murders. And he had stirred up a hornet's nest of persecution. Now the hornet's nest was after him. They turn on him immediately. And then verse 30, another beautiful, a beautiful picture of the body of Christ at work. When the brothers learned this, when the church heard about it, they bring him down to Caesarea and send him off to Tarsus. It's like, Saul, let's send you home for a while. <laughs> let's just wait till things simmer down. We're going to send you back where you came from. And he goes back to Tarsus. Can you imagine the reception he might have received when he came back from Tars- to Tarsus. But what you see in verse 30 is that he's now accepted by the church. They love him. They, they protect his life. Brotherhood in Christ. Love for him. Commitment towards him. Solidarity with him. They had ownership of his life. They're like, we're not going to let this happen to you. And he is the one that instigated Stephen's death. He was now their brother in Christ. Forgiven. Redeemed. Barnabas encourages the church to accept Saul. Saul's reign of terror ended. The church now has peace. Verse 31 has this summary statement of how the church changes. 
It says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I love the summary statements in the book of Acts. There are, there are a number of them. And every time you get a summary statement, it is summing up like everything that's happened already in the book of Acts. So this is immediately summing up what just happened with Saul serving Jesus and suffering for him, but it also really boils down everything that's gone on since Acts 1.1. And you break down verse 31, and what you've got is a great picture of how the gospel changes everything. And we will spend the rest of our lives learning as believers how the gospel changes everything. And here, we, we really see four essential gospel outcomes, all in verse 31, that sum up really how the gospel changes everything. The first thing, this is so amazing that God does this in his grace. The gospel turns us from enemies of God into friends of God. From violence against the name of Christ to peace with Christ that we were at enmity that means we had the hostility towards Jesus now some of you might say well you know I I got saved as a young child I never felt hostile about Jesus towards Jesus I I get that okay I I totally get that because you didn't have a long history of like sinning grievously like I did But let's just say you got saved when you were 20 years old. You might have a similar story to me. You might not. But here's mine. I was an enemy of the gospel. I was against Jesus. I was opposed to the gospel. And I looked like a nice guy on the outside. My heart was against Jesus. You would have looked at me and said, there's a nice guy with a fro. All natural, by the way. An afro. All natural. You would say, that's a nice guy driving his 73 Pontiac Firebird? Well, I was so opposed to Jesus. My senior year in high school, during my baccalaureate, 1980, there was a guy who had a really bad reputation previously, and he got up at the baccalaureate with his guitar, and he sang a Bob Dylan Christian song. I'm not sure if you remember this, but Bob Dylan went through his Christian period and put out a couple albums, and... um, he sang the song. I remember on a 12-string guitar. <laughs> There's something that only third hour got today, okay? It was a 12-string guitar. And then he got done with the song, and he proceeded to passionately preach the gospel. And he told all of us that we were on our way to hell and that we needed to believe in Jesus and be saved. And I was furious I remember telling friends of mine how dare he do that how dare he hijack our baccalaureate because I was against Jesus and the gospel I didn't want to hear what he had to say and actually I looked at him and said I know what you're like how could you get up there and say that the gospel turns enemies into friends And it also makes friends and enemies because all of Saul's original friends are now his enemy and they want to to kill him, right? 
But the gospel turns enemies into friends. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether you got saved when you were 5 or 35 or age 20 like I was back in 1982, you realize that you're justified by faith. You're made right with God through faith in Christ. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. But now you have peace with God through Jesus. Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I was under the wrath of God. Before you got saved, you were under the wrath of God because of your sin. But it says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Galatians 1, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Colossians 1, Paul said, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Colossians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all your trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I hope you understand the depth of the cross. I hope you understand what God did at the cross. At the cross, Jesus wasn't just saying, I'm going to take people that are pretty good and kind of push them forward a little bit and make them a little better. No, Jesus said, I'm going to take lost sinners who are dead and I'm going to pay their sin debt and I'm going to cause them to be alive that they might respond in faith. I hope you grasp this. If you do, you love to hear about it. See, for his own sovereign good pleasure, God is pleased to mark, if you're a believer, God is pleased to mark you out as especially his, reconciling you to himself. You have peace with God through Jesus. You, you go from being an enemy of God to a friend. That's what we see. It says that the church here had peace. Verse 31, the church had peace because the gospel makes us friends who were enemies of God. The second thing we see here is that the gospel builds up the body of Christ. The church had peace and was being built up. It was being edified because we are called to lovingly and redemptively engage people with the gospel, all people. And when someone is saved, they are now our brother and sister in Christ. And I know that old habits die hard. They do for me, they do for you. It is tough for us to accept those who are enemies of the gospel. We who were enemies of the gospel, it's tough for us to accept those who are enemies of the gospel. Someone comes to faith in Christ and, and, and believers doubt if it's really true. 
I'm sure you can think of times that you have not wanted to accept a new Christian. Or, or maybe you didn't want to share the gospel with someone because you figured they were just too bad to ever be saved. Or maybe you, you meet a, a believer in the church who's been a believer for a while and you say, I don't like that person. I'm not going to interact with that person. And that's your sin problem. You are sinning against your brother or sister in Christ because you don't like them for some reason. It's interesting that we, deep down in our hearts, sometimes don't want certain people to get saved. Russell Moore has been asking this question to the church. Are we praying for a Saul to come out of the rubble of ISIS? Are you praying for a Saul to come out of the rubble of ISIS? Closer to home, your family and friends and neighbors, where you think, well, there's just a, a huge improbability that they'll overturn and be saved. Some of you have had friends who were seemingly so far from ever getting saved get saved miraculously. You know the story. I love how Barnabas told Saul's testimony. I love hearing someone else's testimony. You could tell me your testimony 25 times. I want to hear it every time. And, And I love hearing other people tell people's testimony. Think about your Super 8. We talk about it, about your closest neighbors and friends and coworkers and relatives and classmates and teammates and what have you you got to be connecting with god through his word and prayer and then one another people that have got to put in your life in significant relational connectedness because the gospel changes relationships as we apply the gospel to our relationships the gospel unites those who would not get along outside the church and it's a sad day when those who wouldn't get along outside the church can't get along inside the church I mean, what would you do if your greatest enemy becomes a Christian? How are you going to deal with that? Acts 9 tells of the greatest enemy of the church having a dramatic conversion. The church doesn't want anything to do with him. I said last week that every conversion isn't necessarily dramatic. You know, Joey became a Christian at age five on his bunk bed with his mom. Not going to make the headlines, pretty much. But every conversion is miraculous. Salvation is a a sovereign act of God. We were all lost and hell-deserving. But a new believer pops up, and it's like a shocker to us. Oh, we know what they're like. We know what they're really like. Are they really a Christian? I wonder. Are they just going to fall back into their old ways? Once God gets a hold of a person's heart and changes them from the inside out, and takes a spiritually dead person and makes them alive when God says mine you can't argue with that Romans fifteen seven says therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God that word welcome one another literally means to accept accept each other accept each other as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God so the gospel makes us friends who were enemies of God. And the gospel builds up the church. Third thing we see is the gospel teaches us to fear God, not man. The church enjoyed peace, was being built up, and they were going on in the fear of the Lord. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. Do you notice they went from fear to fear? Same word, by the way, phobos. It's the idea of having a phobia. They were fearing Saul 
Now they're fearing God, but in, in dra- uh, drastically different ways. Barnabas had the courage to stand up with, with Saul and became an instrument of change in the church. Here's how the best way I can illustrate what it means to fear man or fear God. Martin Luther helps us bigly, big, big time on this one. Uh, he distinguished between the, uh, the fear of man and the fear of God this way. The fear of man is like the fear of a prisoner afraid of his torturer. The fear of, a, of, of God is like the fear of a child or a parent they love. A prisoner in a torture chamber is in dreadful fear of their tormentor. The clear and present danger presented by another person. But a child has tremendous respect and love for their father and mother and dearly wants to please them. And they fear offending the one they love. Not because they're afraid of punishment, because they're afraid of displeasing the one who is the source of their security and their love. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear, Proverbs also says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a healthy sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. Now we are called to to call God Abba, Father, and enjoy the personal intimacy promised to us with God, but not to be flippant with Him. Some people just want to call Him Abba and not Father. It's like this, Abba, Father, it's like Daddy, Sir. Daddy, sir, holy father. You know what walking in the fear of the Lord means? The church was walking in the fear of the Lord. It means that they were living a life of worship. If you don't know how to worship him in spirit and in truth, even God is going to disappoint you. Worship is not a moment. It's not an hour. It's not a service. It is your life. I am very struck by Barnabas' compassion and courage to stand up to a church that was full of fear that led them to reject a fellow brother in Christ. But what did it was Barnabas telling Saul's testimony. The gospel changes everything. Hard to encapsulate that much change in four words. The gospel changes everything. It's a good thing that God has given us the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And it's a good thing that God has given us a mind and a mouth. A mind to know His will and a mouth to praise His glorious grace. I was thinking just the other day, I wanted you to hear testimonies today. And so, literally, spur of the moment, I asked three people to use, I said, just use your phone and video yourself doing your testimony. And I'm gonna, we're going to show you three of them right now. One of our junior hires, Arela Hammond, one of our elders, Pete Roberts, and one of our young men, Stephen Aguilar. Uh, the quality of the videos isn't, isn't great, but the content is. So, testimonies of the grace of God in Christ. Ever since I was little, I heard Bible stories, memorized scripture, and went to church. But it wasn't until I was nine that I really understood the gospel and received Christ. After that, I started reading my Bible a lot more than I used to, and God has been a lot more present in my life. 
my Heavenly Father, my Lord, who listens to all of my prayers and cares about everyone. <clears throat> also since then, I've started praying a lot more and, you know, talking to God throughout the day. And I, I've also tried really hard to put others before myself, make them more important. So I think that receiving Christ has made a huge impact on my life in a lot of ways. One of the things that impressed me uh, and, and maybe uh, uh, called me to grace was that uh, some kindness that was done to Elise uh, after Renee was born. Um, and uh, many families brought over meals for a week uh, and was, were doing something for my family for no return. And, and they were doing something for nothing and that made no sense to me as a non-believer, uh, I was very familiar with getting, doing, you know, getting something for something, uh, and uh, and so I started attending Grace. I I uh, listened to Pastor Ed's sermons for for quite a while. I, Sunday after Sunday, I heard the gospel, and I even uh, attended Mark Holbert's uh, Sunday school class. And I'm, I was sure that the Lord was giving me extra credit. For being at church not only through a service but in a Sunday school class and uh, on one Sunday uh, the Lord uh, blinded me no, he opened my eyes to the fact that um, uh, the Bible was true, the, the pew Bible I was holding was all true and, and I had to ask myself a question uh, at that time um, and I did I, 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 it came to me immediately, it was was I going to go with this truth that I knew was true, or was I going to continue to lead a false life and and pretend that I was a good person on the outside? And uh, I decided that I was going to choose the truth. And uh, and I I didn't know much about uh, doctrine or anything else at that time, but I decided that I was going to trust the Lord and follow the truth. And, uh, and let him lead me and guide me that way and let the chips fall where they may. And uh, um, I've, been, I've been blessed uh, beyond belief um, knowing the Lord. And I would just encourage anybody who is attending church who hasn't made a commitment to the Lord that although you should count the cost uh, of becoming a believer, and in my case, I, I, I was so bankrupt I had nothing to pay anyway, and uh, the way I was leading my life was a complete mess. And uh, thankfully, uh, the Lord has rescued me and saved me, and and put me on the narrow way. And uh, I am I am so grateful for that, and uh, for, for that uh, that calling and saving by the Lord. So uh, I would encourage you to to make the same choice. Thank you. Hi, my name is Steven Aguilar, and I wrote a portion of my testimony, and uh, here it is. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was corrupt from my youth, and I'm convinced of that. I know that. I was born in sin. I was dead in my sins, and I was following the course of this world. I was a son of disobedience, living in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of my body and mind. I was by nature a child of wrath. I am a hell-deserving sinner. But I heard the word. 
I was so many things. I a drunk, a drug addict, so many things that I'm ashamed of. But I heard the gospel. I heard the truth. I read it. The command of repentance. I was told to count the cost. I read about the narrow way. I learned it was through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not by baptism. Not the sinner's prayer. And I say that because I came from a church and I went to other churches where one of them taught that baptism was essential for salvation. And the reason why I bring up the sinner's prayer is because in the Western Christianity and the place where I live, they have that everywhere. On the radio, sermons online, they have that. And I pray that prayer countless times. But I learned the truth about the cross. I learned that it it was by faith alone, in Christ alone. God drew me in. I did not choose him. He chose me. And not because there was anything good in, good in me or of myself. The word says, I was born out of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Just as the word says, also in other places, faith cometh by hearing. I heard the word. The word that God calls all men to repentance. I just want to finish this off with Ezekiel 36 because there's a very appropriate verse here. It says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. Only God could have done that in my life, changed me from being the person that I was, from continuing to walk in the ways of this world, and give me a new heart and a love for Him that I never had. Three different people from different backgrounds with a story that's all different because they're different people but who also know what Christ did at the cross Paul's testimony also was that his ongoing battle with sin kept going and would go until he went to be with Jesus I think every one of us would say the same if we're a believer but what we look to is the cross because at the cross the great exchange took place 2 Corinthians 5.21, our sin for Christ's righteousness. So the eternal debt owed by, for sin was paid in full at the cross. God the Father looked on his perfect, precious, priceless son as if he had lived the filthy, wretched, sin-stained life of the world, fallen mankind. And all who repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior... God the Father looks on you as if you had lived his son's perfect, priceless, precious life. Believer, how has Jesus changed your life? Tell someone. Don't just check it off and say, well, I did that once. Keep telling your story over and over again to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to everyone you can. If you're not a believer... You might have been invited to church. I'm going to invite you to Jesus. Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus 
and you will be saved. Saved by the Spirit of God, by the power of His Word. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is forgiveness only in Christ. And if you became a believer at a very young age or when you got, were older, think of it this way. The gospel saves you from a life of sin either way. Rescued either way, saved from the pit. Don't let the fear of man keep you from telling others what Christ did at the cross or what Christ has done in your life. And then one last thing we see in this passage about how the gospel changes everything. The gospel not only gives us peace with God, not only builds up the church, not only gives us the fear of God rather than the fear of man, but it gives us comfort in the Holy Spirit. Do you notice that? It says that they went on in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who knows the Spirit's convicting power then knows the Spirit's comforting presence. Everything doesn't become perfect in your life when you become a believer. But God is with you in the midst of your mess. Your painful, gut-wrenching, tangled mess. Peace in pain, beauty from ashes, comfort in your pain. 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You are comforted in the Holy Spirit as a believer, and you will suffer for Christ's name. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's a key word for Christians, overcome. It's the Greek word nikao. It means to conquer. It means to prevail. It comes from the Greek word nike, which means victory. First John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. First John 5, 4, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Believers, you have comfort. You have assurance of victory. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, no one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. So believer, cling to the hope you have in Christ and then come alongside those who are hurting. Even though the Jews wanted to save Saul, uh, kill Saul, take his life. Even though Christians didn't believe that he had new life, the gospel changed everything for him. Peace, building up the body, fear of God, comfort of the Holy Spirit, and he suffered greatly. Paul said, if this is all there is, believers are most to be pitied. Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is in store for believers because we will be with Christ forever. So the gospel changes everything, even though everything in your life hasn't changed yet. And through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, 
I'll be with you. Believer, if you're passing through deep waters today, know that Jesus is with you, that he is always with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. The gospel changes everything for us. So we should offer everything to Christ. Lord, thank you for doing everything for us at the cross. Thank you, Lord, for peace with you. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for reverence for you that overcomes our fear of man. And thank you, Lord, for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we, in Christ, are secure forever. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.